Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast that's welcome to all, except for Abraham Flexner. If your name is Abraham Flexner, you're not allowed to listen to this podcast. Get out. Because today, uh, we're talking about bigotry in the healthcare profession. And you'll get the joke that I just made a bit later. I promise it's not funny right now, but it will be. <laughs> Those are the best jokes that mm-hmm. aren't funny. Mm, you just have to hang on for a little bit and then you're, you're going you're gonna to get it. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't get it yet, but hopefully I will. It's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is Mia Mulder. Mm-hmm. My name is Ren. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, and my name is Raluca Montano. <laughs> I, to- I just had, like, the, the biggest brain fart in the world. My name is Mia Mulder. Uh-huh. Yeah? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> what about it? Hmm. Um, and before we dig into a topic that definitely could be a whole podcast in its own right, um, how have you been? What have you been up to? Um, I've, been, I've been pretty busy. I've been very stressed. Mm-hmm. I think we mentioned it in the last episode also, but I started a new program in school, um, a master's program. So I've been very, you know, busy with schoolwork and getting used to a new to a new program, a new schedule, um, reading a lot of papers, mm. <laughs> um, as, as one does in master's programs, doing a lot of group work. Fun stuff. Fun stuff all around. <laughs> mm, school. School. Uni. Great. No, but, uh, you know, we're learning some really cool stuff. And it's amazing, actually, how much more intensive this program is compared to, like, you know, an undergrad program. I feel like I've learned more about genetics and, like, you know, free weeks than free years of undergrad. So Yeah, you posted something on Twitter not too <clears> long ago <throat> about how, how DNA can explode. Mm-hmm. Chromosomes, yeah. That's, that's fucked up. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's something that I didn't know about until like yesterday, and you know my teacher told me or told us that in a very casual way, and I was just like, "Where does it stop? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there is there an end? Is there a limit to how messed up the genome is? Like it's it's always breaking, it's always falling apart mm-hmm. and coming back together. Yeah, it's it's very dynamic. It's very very creatively destructive. Mm. It's a miracle that we're alive. For for real. Um, actually, funny story. So my teacher was telling us about how um, there's this patient that she studied um, who apparently had this chromosome shattering, but she didn't know about it until she actually wanted to, to become pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she had issues with that. So her chromosome literally shattered and it led to chromosome rearrangements, um, which usually can cause a lot of genetic illnesses yeah but but in in you know genetic illnesses can can occur from like small small changes in the in the sequence but Mm -hmm. can you imagine a whole chromosome basically falling apart and then put being put back together pretty much randomly yeah like i mean the fact that this person was 
alive and like doing well and didn't know that something was wrong with her yeah. is is amazing it's insane i i guess the equivalent would be like mutations like the typically happen is like a building having like bricks like bricks replaced mm-hmm. with new colors like it changes different and sometimes the bricks will be bad and it'll cause some damage mm-hmm. right but mm-hmm. the house will still be there mm-hmm. whereas a chromosome exploding i guess it's like the house blowing up and being mm-hmm. rebuilt mm-hmm with like in a whole new way in a, in a and whole, it's a like, miracle that it's in like a random way yeah. yeah it's uh it's really amazing That's um cool. yeah so i'm i'm i've been learning a lot it's very it's very exciting very intensive mm-hmm. um how are you I've been good. I've been chasing a desk around uh, yeah. halfway ar- across Sweden. I heard that's been that's been my thing. We're recording this in uh, the living room of of this place because mm-hmm. uh, I don't have my office space where we should record this mm-hmm. this podcast. No, because uh, yeah, my desk is missing. Mm-hmm. They delivered half my desk, mm-hmm. which I didn't know was possible. Mm-hmm. The delivery person. I was I've been waiting for my desk like by the door, like a piggy waiting for slop, um, for like a week. And I I, I, I love waiting. that you made that joke without any context. I know, like you just dropped it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like I'm a piggy waiting for slop. They th- they throw my delivery at the door and I come oiking. <laughs> and um, I've been waiting so long. And I got my I got the messages that they were delivering on my desk. And I was so happy. It was already delayed. I've been delaying like work and streams and everything so mm-hmm. I can get my desk. And the delivery person comes up with the truck. And I'm like so excited. I'm standing outside. And he looks around and he hands me a small package. A small box. And I'm like, this is not a desk. <laughs> Have I ordered a model of a desk? How did you fit this desk into this like... <laughs> 10 by 10 inch (laughs) little desk yeah into a carryable little thing this is no Mm -hmm. you you fucked up somewhere you Mm -hmm. messed up this is not right um yeah they lost my desk so i had to call the delivery people and they had to like put they put up a warrant for my desk and some guy had to like go around the the warehouse looking for it yeah that's not how it's supposed to go did they find it they have now found it Mm -hmm. i do not yet have it okay and I don't know where I'm gonna when I'm gonna have it. I mean, hopefully soon. But that's that's uh, that's kind of a fuck up. DHL, do better. Yeah, but yeah, that's what I've been up to. And mm. then outside of that, just like you know, work. Mm. Um, the huge. The huge. Making making YouTube videos. I'm making a video on psychology, mm-hmm. which is almost medical related. I'm excited to uh, to see it. Yeah, and hopefully so are you, dear listener. If you don't listen, if you don't watch my videos, but listen to the podcast, hi, welcome. We appreciate you also very much. But with that said, with that said, we need to to hurry up to get into it. Yes, but before we get into it, so I'm I'm gonna keep delaying this podcast for <clears throat> half an hour. We need to thank a patron, mm-hmm. our dear, wonderful patrons out there who support the show, who mm-hmm. make sure that we can host the show, so mm-hmm. we don't lose money by hosting it because it actually it's not free to have this on Spotify. Uh, we want to thank you, and we want to specifically thank Christo Kolev. Thank you, Christo Kolev, for being our patron. We really appreciate it, and this episode is dedicated to you. Um, you specifically made this possible. <laughs> you did this. You're responsible. <laughs> Anyway, as you can tell from the title, in this episode, we're going to be talking about discrimination in healthcare. We're going to talk about specifically women and people of color and how discrimination affects those groups in particular. Mm -hmm. There's obviously other minority groups that face bias in healthcare, but for this episode, we're going to be focusing on those demographics uh, specifically. Yeah, it's a huge topic. Even this is just a huge topic. We're narrowing it down. Yeah, yeah. We could... This could easily be like eight feature films mm. <laughs> dedicated to this. There's so much here. So obviously we do we're, it's a bit generalized when we're, we're we're doing a brief overview, mm-hmm. but it's a good one. 
It's mm-hmm. a good overview. Yeah, I hope we're not um, gonna miss too much. I try to be pretty comprehensive, but also in the interest of time, you know, had yeah. to cut down on some details. Um, I hope we're gonna do the topic justice. So we have divided this episode into two general parts. It is discrimination within the healthcare field, like becoming doctors and becoming like healthcare professionals, but also uh, being exposed to the healthcare system, like being patients or like taking part of it. And then we've also divided those those parts into the historical part and the, and the more present part, because this is a medical history podcast and we have to also talk about the history, but it's also impossible to talk about historical things without also mentioning how they impact us today, which means I have been, I have been uh, tasked with a wonderful mission of trying to explain, uh, summarize racism over the last 3,000 years <laughs> and what it means for doctors. <laughs> obviously, when we're talking about exclusion from the medical profession, there's obviously a huge overlap with just general exclusion from society. When we're talking about women, for example, women have uh, typically like been kept at home uh, under patriarchal conditions, not really been allowed to be in the workforce generally. And obviously there has been like you know massive historical structural racism for thousands uh, of thousands of years. And there are obviously individual issues that also go back for a long time. So a quick overview is going to be very quick. And it's going to be very, very narrowly sliced to talk about like specific instances when they have dedicatedly excluded people from being physicians. For example, the Chinese Exclusion Act banned all Chinese immigrants to the United States, which impacts all uh, Chinese uh, job applications or like participation in the job market because they're not allowed in the country. And so obviously it's also going to affect how many Chinese immigrants become doctors. But because it impacts all Chinese immigrants, it's not something that I'm going to dig into here. I'm going to dig into things that specifically deal with medical professions. And with that huge caveat, which everyone loves to hear so often, but that are also so necessary in these, in these topics, we are going to look back into history at long last. Historically, the further back we look in medical history, the more exclusionary it is. We've already made a previous episode about how women were excluded from the medical profession in Europe, but it's important to mention that basically anyone who wasn't already part of the elite wasn't allowed to get an education at all, much less in a privileged field like medicine. And this goes far back, not just like 1800s or medieval times, in some respects even back to ancient Greece, with a very general idea developed by Plato and Aristotle called the Great Chain of Being which is a taxonomic term about ranking all the things in the universe, like a great chain. All things are connected in this chain, but some things are above others. And this is a very, like, we're talking baseline racism, or like hierarchical structures here. I was about to say, that sounds very suspicious. (laughs) Yeah, when Aristotle and Plato invented racism, Mm -hmm. uh, modern racism. Uh, For example, plants uh, in this chain are above minerals, but animals are above plants, and humans above animals. And this was eventually developed in like Christian theology to include angels above people and then God above angels. But it was also used as a justification for all sorts of hierarchies, like men being above women, Christians over heathens, Catholics over Protestant. Like there's, yeah. they, they just keep adding more and more labels into this thing to sort mm. of find a justification as to like why we're better than you. And this mindset dominated many discussions around hierarchies in general, being used to justify things like the natural state of women, African people, Romani people, etc. 
And I mentioned this because this was a major justification for why dealing with healthcare was often seen as a very sacred, close to the top mm. of this hierarchy, closer to God. There's like a say- not just anybody could do it. Exactly, not just anyone can do it. You have to be like you have to be close to God. Uh, and we talked previously about how like clergy were were very like. They wanted the healthcare system for themselves. You probably heard a term like cleanliness is close to godliness. Mm-hmm. That's part of this. Really? Yeah, because it's it's uh, being being clean is close to God. God. Cleanliness is part of health, which means that if you're lower down on the chain, using the certification, people will be like, well, you're not you're not meant to do that. Mm-hmm. You're not mm-hmm. meant to be a physician. You're meant to be like a laborer or something. Mm. And the ancient Greeks mindset that it, this was also used to like justify slavery. That like. Uh, slaves of any religion or ethnicity or whatever were were naturally lowered down on the rank. That's why they're slaves. That's they're, why they're slaves. Yeah, they, they're, they belong there. Yeah. Like, that's just their place. Which is why it made sense for the initial formal doctors in mainstream academia, at least in Europe and the Western world, to be clergy. Obviously, this was used more as a justification by those already in power to why they should stay in power. Like, we're closer to God, so that's totally why you can't get an education. We're, we're just going to give ourselves and our buddies education because we're, <laughs> we're, we're buddies with God. We've also talked before about how standardization and sort of professionalization of the profession of doctor has both been used to make the industry or like the sector better in some cases, but how it's also been used to exclude people. How, for example, when physicians became licensed and they could only be uh, given out to people with an education, suddenly women couldn't take part of it as much anymore. And this is a theme we'll see again quite a few times, and especially in one specific case, which I'm going to talk later, when Flexner comes up, the bastard. (laughs) Women in healthcare have traditionally been allowed to serve in some roles, especially assistive roles such as nursing or in specific roles such as midwifery. But the role of doctor or physician was always left out of reach. And most of these exclusions was done by informal institutions. But in the 1500s, roughly, it did became law in many areas around Europe that women were not allowed to become doctors, that the field of doctor was exclusively for men. So no longer like an informal sexism, like it's, it's written in law. For example, in England, Henry VIII made a point of this in his 1514 charter forming the Company of Barber Surgeons, uh, which was the forerunner of the Royal College of Surgeons, in which it was decreed that no carpenter, smith, weaver, or woman <laughs> shall practice surgery. <laughs> Which effectively barred women from practicing most forms of medicine and access and medical training for centuries. I do like that carpenter, smith, weaver, and women. Mm-hmm. By the mid-19th century, more women were demanding entry to go to medical school, even though it wasn't really allowed. The British Medical Journal at the time declared that it is high time that this unnatural and preposterous attempt to establish a race of feminine doctors should be exploded. Men expressed concerns that exposure to gore might pose a risk to the delicate female health. Um, Apparently oblivious that women deal with blood on a fairly regular basis. Although they were not allowed, of course women did have an interest in medicine, and many who even qualified academically to apply, but where medical universities simply refused to accept them. In 1865, Elizabeth Gareth Anderson became the first woman in Britain to qualify as a physician and a surgeon after exposing a loophole in the Worshipful Society's of Apothecaries admissions process, passing her exams for the first time. And the loophole was basically that a nurse can like take a type of test to qualify to do certain things that only apothecaries can do, which wasn't as restricted, but it allowed apothecaries to do what doctors do, so like, ed- like weirdly finding her way to actually kind of becoming a doctor. And immediately after this loophole was exploited, 
they closed it. <laughs> they, they, they found a way to close it. However, the chair of medicine denied her entry to study at the hospital school in 1865. So she set up her own hospital by Euston Road in London, uh, run by women, for women. Girls rule. She was like, you're not going to let me do it in your hospital? I'm going to set up my I'm, own. I'm going to set up my own. I'll have some blackjack in the corner. <laughs> I'm glad that we both thought about the same reference. <laughs> it's a good joke. It's a good reference. It's a good joke. But it wasn't until 1892 that the British Medical Board actually accepted women as part of their ranks. Like, they were okay, we're going to let women join. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the First World War and women were actually needed to take the role of doctors, that the a bit of stigma of women doctors would be start to be worn off. And regarding this is also a somewhat complicated question of women being doctors despite the ban. And now I'm going to talk about trans history, potentially, or like some queer history. Um, we love queer history. We love that here. Um, we can put it into anything. Give us any medical topic and we can talk about it. Uh, and I do want to say that we, we do tend to view historical people through a modern lens, even though we don't know how past individuals feel about themselves, and it probably varies. But I want to talk about cases of, quote-unquote, women pretending to be men, for lack of a better term, in order to practice medicine. Today, we might be tempted to label some of these people as trans men, which is almost definitely the case for some of them, but not all of them. And so we can't really like make a general statement yeah. about any of them, or, and we, we can't really speculate. So it's a, it's a gray area of history. Historians don't like it either. It, we, <laughs> we, we, all, we all hate it. But one of these people uh, was Dr. James Barry, who became a pretty famous doctor in their own time. While in Cape Town in 1826, they performed the first successful cesarean section by a European doctor. And only after they died did, did anyone discover their secret, that they were, for lack of a better term, anatomically female, uh, and caused a huge shock throughout Victorian society. The army even placed an embargo on James Barry's military records for 100 years because they could not bear the shame that a, that a woman had infiltrated their ranks. But on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, another uh, battle was happening to be included into the medical establishment. In America, during slavery, medicine for anyone who wasn't basically a white Anglo-Saxon male was done within their own communities. As in, Native Americans would have like their own sort of like physicians that they had themselves. Black communities, sort of like slave communities, would have their own semi-educated people that did what they could. But after slavery, many black people did attempt to seek an education. But obviously, most people did not have the means to do so, as getting a medical education was pretty expensive. And being freed from slavery doesn't actually leave you with a lot of means and resources, like, un like unfortunately. Mm. They had plans to do proper reparations, and then they didn't do them. In addition to this, many universities would not accept black students just at all. Uh, those that did were sometimes underfunded uh, or not prioritized. And even in cases where they could get an education, they were often not included in the mainstream medical system anyway. To be a doctor at a hospital in the US at the time, you had to be a member of the AMA, or American Medical Association who claimed to not discriminate, but left membership up to local chapters, which frequently discriminated, leaving out all sorts of people who did not fit the mold of being a white guy. This affected not only black doctors, but also women, Latino doctors, native doctors, and basically anyone who wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon Christian. Some black doctors avoided this by leaving for Europe, which would sometimes be easier, which is a wild thing to say. Ernest E. Just, for example, was one of these who in 1912 left for Europe to avoid racism and going 
to Europe to avoid racism is one of those things that I never thought that I would have to say. Yeah. That doesn't sound right. I, uh, I think it's really funny sometimes. I mean, even today, sometimes I'll see people on Twitter talking about how, like, the United States is a lot more racist than Europe. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, mm. no, 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 it is. It's just different. It's different. It's different. It's different. Definitely different. But it, it's no, not... sorry, guys. It's racist here, too. It's extraordinarily <laughs> racist here. Yeah. Sweden, I, Sweden is racist to people who like are white Swedes but speak Swedish with an accent. Europeans are the grandmasters of racism mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be. It's so we need to do something about this, but anyway, just uh just just a little point I wanted to make here. Um yeah. going to Europe is not going to eliminate racism from your life. No. Uh this this all this is also a very specific case, uh because Ernest E just here got like a scholarship mm-hmm. which assured them a place at a at a medical university in Europe, which is a very like narrow individual case and mm. it's anecdotal, right? And for him it probably worked out. Mm. It did work out actually fairly well because he, that afforded him opportunities that he didn't have in the US. But as a general rule, I don't think that would that that's not really something that most people can could do. But black doctors in America responded to this exclusion from the AMA by making their own medical association, the National Medical Association, and just started building their own hospitals instead. And similarly, by black people for black people. Yeah, I you know I'm I, I'm enjoying this. You know you're you're not being given what you need, so you're just gonna make your own. I'm just gonna make I, my own. I applaud it honestly. Unfortunately, though, this sometimes led to black doctors competing over black patients who mm. could pay for the care, especially for specialty care. Because these hospitals would often be run out of people's homes, which significantly less resources than mainstream hospital care. And there became, unfortunately, a myth among black communities that black doctors weren't as qualified mm-hmm. as white mm-hmm. doctors. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, which... Yeah, I see how that would happen. It's such, a, it's such an awful thing. Like, yeah. Um, and it's, it also definitely like overestimates the standards of like white medical education at the time too, because medical education at the time generally wasn't great. Like, not for white people <laughs> either. It's like it's, you're not going to find a white doctor at the time that's like significantly more educated or qualified. Mm, well, yeah, but having access to resources obviously makes a huge difference. Exactly. So, yeah, and yeah. like that's a, that's a huge that's a huge thing. So, despite their own medical system and hospital system, they're still suffering due to this. But at least they have, as we mentioned, like built up their own system for them to take part in. That is until 1910 and the dreaded Flexner report, which I didn't think would be that significant when I did research for this. I thought it would be like, oh, it's one out of like 14 different laws or whatever that's like impacting. But no, like this thing has like caused significant change for the American medical community and still is. Mm. It set the norm for what American healthcare standards look like for good and for bad. So in 1910, the Flexner report, which was a study of medical education in North America, and made by the goddamn American Medical Association and written by a certain Abraham Flexner, dealt a devastating blow by imposing a new standard on medical colleges the majority of African-American schools could not meet. It required all medical schools to be affiliated with a university as well as a hospital, a bit arbitrary, and stressed the importance of clinical training and having a full-time faculty, as well as many other standards most of which didn't have anything to do with the actual standards of medicine, but rather with the sort of prestigiousness and like size of the medical centers. 
And a lot of this just made sure that the smaller centers couldn't keep up. This closed at least four major universities, by the way, that were like black majority, although a few did survive. It also had some very harsh words for a lot of institutions, this report. Very not like diplomatic or like trying to hide what it's saying, like many modern reports would do. It called Chicago's 14 medical schools, for example, a disgrace to the state whose laws permit its existence. Incredibly foul, the plague spot of the nation. That's harsh. That's harsh. <laughs> but just like the medieval standardization, this was also a bit of a mixed bag because there were some changes that did standardize the medical aspect too. Many medical schools before the Flexner Report were small trade schools run by one or two doctors, usually for profit, and didn't require laboratory experience. And this standardization did, in some cases, improve the standard. But it also completely shut out the smaller schools and hospitals run by and for black people based on technicalities. And this was not an accident, by the way. Flexner himself, the author of the report, thought that this was fine, and he was a full whole racist. Flexner's view was that the black doctors should only treat black patients and should serve roles subservient to white physicians. The closure of five medical schools and the fact that black students were not admitted to many U.S. medical schools for the next 50 years has contributed to the low numbers of African-American-born physicians of color, and the ramifications are still felt more than a century later. Related to his adherence to germ theory, Flexner argued that if not properly trained and treated, African-Americans posed a health threat to middle and upper-class whites. And here is a quote that I cannot say in full. I have to believe, I have to self-censor some certain words because I am white and I cannot say some of these oh, words. Girl. Um, uh, this is. Um, oh God, I'm. This like, is old I'm timey. Nervous. This is old yeah. timey racism, by the way, and yeah. this podcast does not stand for it. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the practice of the N-word doctor will be limited to his own race which in its turn will be better cared for by good N-word physicians uh, than by poor white ones. The physical well-being of the N-word is not only a moment to the N-word himself. 10 million of them live in close contact with 60 million whites. Not only does the N-word himself suffer from hookworm and tuberculosis, he communicates them to his white neighbors, precisely as the ignorant and unfortunate white contaminates him. Self-protection, not less than humanity, offers weighty counsel in this matter. Self-interests seconds philanthropy. The N-word must be educated, not only for his sake, but for ours. He is, as far as the human eye can see, a permanent factor in the nation. That was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever yeah. heard in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I have never been so carefully reading this thing so to make sure that I'm not like missaying a word. <laughs> Um, no, but that, yeah, that was very, very uncomfortable uh -huh. to sit through. I'm, um, I, I wish you didn't, I wish you didn't have to read that. <laughs> and I'm sorry for putting out our listeners for this, mm -hmm. but that's, I guess that's a good, um, I it, mean, it's, it, it's good to have just to, to illustrate uh, the kind of person the Flexner was. Exactly. And maybe also indicate the fact that the Flexner report was written, you know, with a certain agenda in mind. Yeah. It wasn't so much so as to improve education uh, or imp like increase standards for practitioners, but, you know, it came from a place of clear racism. And yeah. he, he simply wanted to limit black people from being physicians. Yeah. A lot of modern, like, writing about the Flexen Report mm. sort of admits that. Mm. And I feel like this section was kind of important too. Yeah. Like, in the, yeah for yeah, that for sure. historical context. Uncomfortable, but important. Yeah. 
and the Flexner report and uh, the changes that it did by closing schools and restricting the, the profession even more made it so that black people just had significantly harder time becoming doctors. And the mm-hmm. ones that did had to do that under segregation and could only serve in, in segregated hospitals. However, around 1960, some hospitals did become integrated, which did help. Black doctors weren't as limited where they practiced. And that is how we're rapidly approaching present time. Because basically from the Flexner Report and desegregation, not a lot has been done to sort of include black people into into the workforce Mm. of healthcare professionals, unfortunately. And in the present day, there has been some good changes. Universities today uh, accept minorities to join healthcare classes. You can't ban black people from becoming doctors anymore. Uh, Good. A win. A win. (laughs) Loss for racism. After the Second World War, many universities changed their restrictions to allow women to join. And along with the women's liberation movement, a lot of places also began putting in a quota or affirmative Mm. actions, as it's more commonly known in the US, I think. With the foundation of the National Health Service in the UK, the NHS, um, there was also a demand that a reasonable amount of new students in the healthcare profession be women. So that is helpful for women to join the workforce. And that seems to have worked. Women are dominating the healthcare sector now in many Western countries in almost all fields, except for physician, dentist, chiropractor, and obstetrician. Almost every other medical profession is like between 60 and 85% women. And uh, it's it's rising too. The, the majority of healthcare students are also women. Yeah. Uh, which I think is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And, it, you know, it's it's a good thing. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if you're going to talk about uh, wage disparities and the fact that women don't really end up being, um, you know, hospital CEOs and are, are you going to talk about that? I'm not going to talk about it no. that much, but, but that is definitely a thing that does, yeah, it also it's, happens. It's. I mean, I think it should be mentioned that women do hold so many more roles now, mm-hmm. um, actually dominating the medical profession, but they're still paid less yeah. and they're still not occupying mm-hmm. high prestige roles. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, still working on that. Yeah. So and that's why like the, the role of physician itself is still male dominated and yep. it's heavily so. Yep. So which is... I mean, obviously the answer is sexism, but it's it's weird that so many women are in the healthcare profession and want to become physicians, but that one little slice of the medical profession is just, just male-dominated still. Uh, and as you said, it, it's notable that many of the more prestigious roles in the healthcare sector are still dominated by men. For what it's worth, more presently also, the American Medical Association did apologize for being de facto discriminatory to anyone who isn't uh, like a white guy. They apologized. <laughs> they apologized in 2008. Mm. Uh, good on them, good for the apology, but the National Medical Association is still around uh, and is still serving like black doctors and black healthcare professionals uh, and it's thriving today. So that's mm. good. Mm. A big issue uh, still for a lot of people who want to get into the medical profession is tuition fees. Both the UK, the US, a lot of places around Europe still have high tuition fees and places around the world. Becoming a doctor is a long, it's a long time to study and it's pretty expensive. <laughs> and if you don't have the money to do that, then it's going to be hard. There are systems with affirmative action working here as well, but affirmative action is more of a band-aid on a problem than a solution in the first place. There are many more systemic issues here than just like who can afford to get in, because Mm. we're also talking about like who gets the correct grades to get in. To get good grades, you need to go to a good school. Good schools are more heavily like shifted to to white kids, Mm. which is also... There are so many levels of racism and yeah. uh, oppression. There are still also some myths around both uh, black and women physicians. Some people think that they're less qualified. These myths still hold. 
or that they should only deal with their own, as they say. Like, a person would think that a woman should only treat other women, or that a black doctor should only treat other black patients, which is kind of kind of old-fashioned thinking. It doesn't actually... It, it restricts these doctors, because you, you don't really think that about, like, white physicians. And while women are taking up a more significant part of the workforce, it doesn't seem that that's happening for... Uh, for black doctors, in the last 100 years, the percentage of black doctors in the, uh, in the healthcare sector has basically been unchanged. In 1900, 1.3% of physicians were black. In 1940, it was 2.8%. Uh, and 2018, it is 54 So yeah, it's an increase, mm. but not by much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mia, you've talked about the history of discrimination in the medical ranks, but how about patients? That's the other thing that we wanted to talk about. So as in the first section, like you did, I'm going to talk about the discrimination against women and discrimination against people of color as patients. And I'm going to start with women. So the first thing that I actually want to talk about is physical differences between male and female bodies and about how medical research often uses male bodies as a standard. And then the problems that that causes. Um, we love disclaimers, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to do to do a disclaimer here. So this discussion concerns sex-based characteristics, concerning anatomy, physiology, genes, and certain hormones. So I'll be using terms like male and female bodies to navigate this context. I hope that this is inclusionary enough, um, and I also hope that listeners can understand why those terms are appropriate for this context. I think as the resident trans woman of this, yeah. of this thing, you can't criticize the podcast for being transphobic. <laughs> so historically, males have been often selected as research study participants more than women. And this has been happening on the assumptions that results from males apply to females. And also possibly because there has been this concern that women have hormonal fluctuations, which can affect the experimental results, or that can be a confounding factor in the experiment. Another reason is actually because historically, it has been considered that women of childbearing age, along with children, should be protected. They should be excluded from clinical trials in order to protect vulnerable populations, meaning unborn children. So not even the women. <laughs> not even protecting the women. That's, just yeah. the, the women are just the, the carriers yeah. of the real people that we care about, which is the unborn eggs. children. The yeah. eggs. Gotta protect the eggs. Gotta protect the eggs. Stephen Molyneux is losing his mind listening to this podcast. Uh, I'm already getting angry. Like, <laughs> this is going great. So, um, yeah, the, while this may come from a place of concern, I'm being generous here, um, it actually has really troubling effects because as epidemiological and clinical studies of men actually generate different results for men um, and women, like for example, in response to certain drugs, especially in cardiovascular disease and immune dysfunction, those results cannot be applied to women effectively. Yeah. So it was actually in 1993 that researchers in the U.S. started being a bit more aware of these differences, and NIH mandated the inclusion of women in clinical trials. Wait, 1993? Yeah, it was late, and it was paralleled by changes in Europe and Australia. But, I mean, it's... I think we often don't realize how late some of these changes occur. Like until 1993, you could you weren't required to include women. You could just include all men and apply those results to women and just be fine. It's fine. Women, but, women are just men with with the fluctual hormones. Yeah, with so, just like yeah. 
like inverted penises yeah. like it's fine extra bits. Yeah. also the nih you know they started requiring clinical studies to include women but even so the results of studies that enroll both sexes still don't provide sex specific interpretations of results nor does this new requirement mention anything about including females in preclinical animal research and you know animal studies are they're they're integral to like drug development and drug testing so it might not sound important but it actually is <laughs> um, i think it sounds pretty important yeah yeah well like, i'm glad you, i'm yeah. glad it sounds like it um if but you're, if you're testing a drug on an animal you need to know how it impacts exactly. things like ovaries and wounds right? and stuff yeah and so the you know the the reason that is often coded for this is that they exclude female animal subjects because of like hormonal differences and you know sex based differences that make the results harder to interpret but like if those sex based differences occur in animals wouldn't you want to know <laughs> so that you don't omit anything important that might have an effect on humans mm -hmm. like it's insane like isn't that why you would actually want to test in females it's anyway everything can be sacrificed by trying to make a result more statistically significant yeah, i mean honestly um more variables make the more complicated paper <laughs> I mean, okay, like, I, I get it. I really do. Animals are really hard to work with. But, um, but I, I mean, it's just, just not justifiable to omit a group that is supposed to represent, like, half of the human population and just because it makes things harder for you. <laughs> Going forward, um, so today female bodies are still excluded from studies in fields including neuroscience, pharmacology, and physiology, whereas women tend to be overrepresented in reproductive studies and immunology. But sex differences between male and female bodies exist beyond the reproductive system. So, for example, sexual dimorphism has been documented in more than 23,000 mouse transcripts of active genes, many of which are involved in common diseases where susceptibility is sex-based. So, studies limited to a single sex cannot yield a full understanding of underlying mechanisms, and so it's very important to involve or to include both male and female bodies. So the reason why women are involved in immunology studies is because there's a fair number of immune diseases for which women are a lot more susceptible, um, like lupus and Graves' disease and multiple sclerosis. And we know that gonadal steroids mediate some of those sex differences. But even though these sex differences in those immune-mediated diseases are well-documented, Modern non-human animal research in immunology often fails to indicate the sex of the participants. <laughs> um, this is like an important part to include. Yeah, that's pretty important. Also, currently women are diagnosed with anxiety disorders 2.2 times more often than men because we're stressed. But most animal studies on anxiety and anxiolytic drugs focus on male rats. Why is that? Women also have more stroke events than men, as well as an increased incidence of hypertension after menopause. Despite this, 65% of articles on animal models of stroke describe research on males. None of them used females, only 10% used both sexes, and 25% didn't even specify the subject's sex. This is, by the way, I'm, um, I'm getting this information from a review that looked at uh, gender bias in studies. Mm. So, you know, even with these diseases that we know women are more susceptible for, they still use males to represent females, yeah. which makes no sense. Pain is actually another highly analyzed data set for animal models and human studies. You know, pain is a very, it's a very important factor in medical science or a very important 
phenomenon, I guess you could say. Yeah. So it's, it's highly studied and are at 1.5 higher risk than men for many clinical pain conditions. 79% of the studies published in the review that I was talking about investigated only males. The efficacy of drug treatments differs between men and women, women having a 1.5 to 1.7 fold greater risk of adverse reactions to medications than men. Despite this, investigation of both male and female rodents is rare due to, again, hormonal fluctuations, which can affect pharmacokinetics. But if those hormone fluctuations affect drug absorption and metabolism, isn't that more reason to include female subjects in the first place? So talking about pain and pain bias in medicine, this is actually something very important when we talk about gender bias in medicine. Mm -hmm. So pain is a symptom in a wide range of medical conditions and is unfortunately subject to systematic bias based on gender which leads to pain under recognition and under treatment. So recognizing pain is a fundamental element of caregiving, and it's a highly valuable skill for clinicians. However, pain is subjective, and pain self-reporting is the golden standard in clinical contexts in the United States. But pain assessment by the clinician is commonly done as well, which means, unfortunately, that there is an element of subjectivity at play, where the clinician is responsible to assess the pain of the patient based on their own interpretation of behavior and facial expression and things like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, it, th this assessment can be affected by the observer's knowledge and biases <laughs> regarding gender, regarding pain. And so it has been found that the gender of the sufferer is especially influential on pain assessment and that gender stereotypes can actually affect the clinician's interpretation or assessment of the patient's pain. And some of these gender stereotypes can include um, the one we all know uh, about how women complain more than men, about how women are not accurate reporters of pain, about how men are more stoic, so that when they complain about pain, it's real pain, and that women are better able to tolerate pain or have better coping skills than men. So as a consequence of these stereotypes, women with chronic pain frequently report being mistrusted and psychologized by their healthcare providers, meaning that they're more likely to be recommended psychological treatments instead of analgesics, that they're less likely to receive opioid analgesics, and that they're more likely to get mental health referrals and antidepressants. Yeah, it's just a continuation of like, you're just hysterical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I uh, Your pain isn't, your back yeah. isn't like an excruciating pain. Yeah, you just you're have, just sad. You're just sad, you just have anxiety. Like, no, my, my leg hurts. <laughs> I broke my leg. My leg hurts. <laughs> There's definitely an overlap here, I feel, with like trans broken arm syndrome. Mm -hmm, for um, sure. Which we could we could all make a whole thing about that in yeah, the future. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I was actually going to, to talk more about that, specifically about how women's pain is often psychologized. And modern medicine has been long criticized for attributing psychological explanations to ailments in women more than in men, especially when the cause of the ailment is unknown. The fact that psychological problems can have a wide range of non-specific symptoms, which also appear in other conditions, means that women are often misdiagnosed. So if you have sharp chest pain, it could be anxiety, but it could also be pericarditis. Do you have pelvic pain? could be regular period pain, or it could be ovarian cysts. So again, this leads to women being overprescribed anti-anxiety medication and antidepressants, 
instead of proper treatments for serious conditions that yeah, they like may phys- have. Physical, physical conditions. conditions. Yeah. And it can also be one of the reasons why women make up the majority of the 100 million Americans suffering from often undertreated chronic pain. It's also one of the reasons why it takes on average nearly five years and five doctors for female patients with autoimmune diseases to receive a proper diagnosis. And lastly, there are also diseases which primarily affect women, like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, that have only recently begun being recognized as real diseases. Yeah. People of color are another demographic that suffers from health inequalities, partly because of social determinants of health, including wealth disparity, food insecurity, and lack of safe and affordable housing, partly because of systematic racism that is embedded in everyday life, and partly because of poor healthcare, both in terms of healthcare accessibility, insurance coverage, and healthcare standards. In the United States, while some progress has been made in terms of educational and better income attainment, improved life quality, and so on, African Americans still experience illness and infirmity at much higher rates than other racial and ethnic groups, and also receive healthcare that is inferior to white patients. So one of the first things that I want to talk about in this section is biological wear and tear. So it's pretty well known that chronic stress can lead to inflammation, which can have severe health consequences and cause premature aging, as well as raise the risk of diabetes, heart disease, and high blood pressure, metastatic cancer, and neurodegenerative illness. This chronic stress-related biological aging is a phenomenon that is referred to as allostatic load also known as weathering. And it's been found that genes promoting chronic inflammation, which are activated by the body's fight-or-flight response, are expressed more in black adults than in white adults, especially in black adults who are the target of higher levels of racial discrimination. Black men are especially vulnerable to racism-related stressors, which is connected with their disproportionately higher risk of contact with the criminal justice system, as well as the pressures associated with trying to provide for their families despite constrained economic opportunities. Unfortunately, race-based stressors take a heavy toll on the body, enough to last a lifetime, and even across generations, as disease-predisposing markers can be transmitted epigenetically. A study conducted by Nancy Krieger, professor of social epidemiology, indicates that early life exposure to Jim Crow laws, which legalized racial discrimination in some U.S. states until the mid-60s, is a factor contributing to negative health outcomes decades later. Among black women diagnosed with breast cancer, those born in a Jim Crow state are more likely to be diagnosed with estrogen receptor negative breast tumors, which are more aggressive and less responsive to traditional chemotherapy. That's messed up. Yeah, it is. I had no idea, like, because obviously I know the like systemic racism exists and mm-hmm. has like massive like economic and uh, like S- systemic legal... racism literally makes people physically sick. That and changes their like genes, all like epi- epigenetically. So the the genome is not changed in itself, but there is mm. modifications where the the sequence is not changed, mm-hmm. but um, it changes the expression of genes. So it changes like the gene product. Yeah, that's still messed up. Yeah, and it can be transmitted through generations. Yeah. So this trauma is literally transmitted to to yeah. people's children and, and grandchildren. Um, that is... Yeah. Racism is so bad. <laughs> so, I mean, I have to talk about healthcare uh, insurance and coverage. That's just, a, you know, something that has to be mentioned mm-hmm. that... Um, 
economic disparities between racial groups makes it obviously more difficult for black people to access health insurance, making it impossible for some to get quality health care because public health care is not always better health care. Uh, and I'm speaking about the United States here. In 2014, 20% of black adults could not access health insurance compared to 10% of white and Asian adults. For Latinx adults, the figure is even higher at 35%. And also, a 2012 study found that predominantly black zip codes in the United States were 67 more likely to have a shortage of primary care physicians. So often, people of color find themselves relying on community health centers, emergency rooms, or outpatient care, as well as community-based providers, or have to travel outside of their immediate geographic areas to access healthcare, which also is not accessible to everyone due to lack of transportation options for those with limited income or for those living in rural areas. So, you know, I mean, insurance differences obviously play a role, but racial disparities exist within healthcare itself and can manifest itself in very subtle but very pervasive ways. So similarly to how medical research uses male bodies as the baseline, it also uses white bodies as a standard. Black and ethnic minority participants are not included in the research process, which leads to diagnostic tests and services not being developed in order to fit non-white bodies. And an example that is relevant to the COVID epidemic is the use of pulse oximeters, which are a type of device that clips onto the finger and records blood oxygen level. However, unfortunately, it may record the dark-skinned patients as having higher oxygen levels than they actually do, leading to cases in which black people who need hospital care are denied it. Feels like something the person who are the people who are making the oximeters should, should think, like, about, think about and maybe right? fix. But I mean, doesn't seem like the most complicated fix. No, maybe? but I mean, but but you know, people of color are just not included in research, yeah. and this is this is an actual problem that I, I think we're we're starting to think about. But it's just kind of been taken as like it's been taken for granted that you know you use male bodies and you use white bodies, yeah, and that's it's fine. Yeah, people don't think about like how, how people don't think about differences how differences. Matter, could yeah. matter. Another example is the stark differences in maternal care for white and black women in the United States and the United Kingdom. Researchers at the University of Oxford found that while the risk of maternal death for white women is 8 in 100,000 women, it is 15 in 100,000 for Asian women and 40 in 100,000 for black women. So five times as much for black women than white women. Mm. The same disparity can be seen in the United States with African-American, Native American and Alaska Native women dying of pregnancy-related causes at much higher rates than white women with the cause of maternal health outcomes, including racial bias and differences in accessing and delivery of healthcare. And this is seen in both the diagnosis and the treatment of a variety of health issues. For example, endometriosis. So endometriosis is diagnosed based on symptoms, primarily on pain, and on the results of a laparoscopy. So because women's pain is not taken as seriously as men's pain, and black women's pain is not taken as seriously as white women's pain, when black female patients go to the doctor, they are just not taken seriously. Isn't, and this... it, isn't it also, I'm not sure if you mentioned that mm-hmm. too, but like, isn't there like a big myth uh, that's like a lot of medical students still hold that just black people yeah. don't feel, yeah. Yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. don't feel pain as much? I as was actually people? going to say oh, this perfect. just now, that this actually dates back to harmful beliefs, mm. um, such as that black people have thicker skin, less sensitive nerve endings, and stronger immune systems, which 
actually some physicians used in order to justify inhumane treatment of slaves and their use as research subjects. And some physicians these days still hold these beliefs. You know, I don't know if they actually, you know, they actually think that way or if they just haven't like questioned those, mm. those beliefs that they were, they heard somewhere. But um, some doctors still, still think that that's the case. I read a study researching for this episode that like, it's like half of yeah, yeah. medical it's, it's students. A crazy, it's a crazy number. Yeah. I, I saw some something like 75%. That's wild though. Um, I know. I didn't want to say the number because I, I honestly don't remember right now which source I have for that, but it's it's some it's some number like that. It's very yeah, high. It's too high because you think it's like oh five ten yeah, people yeah, still no, think that no, long. It's, it's like it's it's incredibly high. But so talking about endometriosis, so it's diagnosed based on symptoms, primarily on pain. Black women's pain is not believed, and also black women are more likely than white women to have fibroids, which are non-cancerous growths of the uterus which means that they are more likely to receive conservative management instead of being investigated further for endometriosis via a laparoscopy. So they're, you know, they're not they're not being given a proper diagnosis even. So, you know, that leads to a lot of black women not being diagnosed correctly and not being treated for for endometriosis. It has been proposed that these differences in healthcare are partly due to physicians' implicit biases, leading them to make harmful judgments about people of color. And there's a study that indicated that when physicians were asked to take the implicit association test, which is a test that evaluates the test takers' implicit bias levels by asking them to link images of white and black faces with pleasant and unpleasant words. I don't know if you've if you know about the test. Mm -hmm. Uh, many, I've, I've done it. I've also done it. Many of them tended to show anti-black and pro-white associations. And these individual biases at the physician level work together with institutional factors, such as the United States policies making health insurance unavailable to undocumented immigrants or documented immigrants who have been in the country for less than five years. Uh, residential neighborhoods being segregated, public health insurance being, uh, you know, mediocre. Uh, so individual bi biases of the physicians work together with those structural factors to eventually lead to extremely poor healthcare being yeah. delivered to people of color. Yeah. So, you know, there are so many examples of the differences in healthcare as well as health outcomes for black and white patients. But there are multiple contributing factors to this issue, including insurance accessibility and coverage, poor initial health due to, due yeah. to chronic stress and other environmental stressors. It cannot be denied that black people also just simply receive inferior healthcare. I mean, it's insane, but they, they just do. Even when insurance status, income, age, and severity of conditions are accounted for, the care that ethnic and racial minorities receive is simply inferior in the sense that treatments they receive are older, cheaper, and more conservative. There's so much to be done to reverse the long-standing effects of racism on the health and well-being of Black people, but you know it takes commitment, it takes systemic change. Um, those things are very difficult to implement. But, you know, racism and bias within the healthcare system has to be addressed. Personnel has to be trained to recognize and eliminate bias in the healthcare system. Access to insurance and quality providers has to be protected. Provider shortages have to be addressed. Black and ethnic minority participants and studies in the research process <laughs> have to be included. <laughs> Why is this so hard? <laughs> Um, the, you know, the development of a diverse and culturally competent healthcare workforce must be supported. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, 
there are certain providers that are available for safety net programs like Medicare and Medicaid, and those, uh, those have to be strengthened. And these are only some examples of the steps that need to be taken in order to attain better equity within healthcare. I mean, it's a, it's so pervasive. And this is, I think that the way that the way that black people are treated within healthcare, it's, I mean, it's such a huge topic. And it's also such a narrow slice of just daily challenges that mm. black people experience. So, it, I mean, it, it's very overwhelming, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, you can really also, because during the COVID pandemic, you've also heard about how like minority communities also distrust the medical establishment. Yeah, more. that's exactly. And after mm-hmm. like hearing, after hearing all this, like you can definitely hear why. Yeah, yeah. Because like, for sure. you can definitely go into, this, into the idea of like, you know, oh, I need healthcare. But have I been included in the studies for the for the health Are they going to treat gonna me well? Me? Are they going to treat me well? I'm Are they going to think yeah, that I'm exactly. supporting my own symptoms? Like I could, I could Here's... see a fully reasonable person mm-hmm. being so skeptical. So skeptical because it's not even that they get less effective healthcare. Black people, I mean, and this is abs- it's horrible and disturbing. Black people are actually more likely to receive treatment that can make things worse. Mm. Black people are more likely to receive amputations. For bipolar disorders, yeah. black people are more likely to receive antipsychotics, which have been proved to be ineffective and actually damaging in the long term. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, not even to to talk about the way that black people have been used as as research participants against their will in mm. extremely unethical experiments in the past. All I'm trying to say is the healthcare system has not been kind to black people and it continues to to mistreat black people. So it's very understandable that there is a skepticism, but this, I mean, this creates further public health issues. Like, um, you know, like you said, with the COVID mm. pandemic, you know, black yeah. communities being skeptical of vaccines. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's a whole mess. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of like, I've seen a lot of white people just being like, just trust doctors, mm-hmm. just trust the vaccine. Yeah, Stop just, being an anti-vaxxer. Mm-hmm. Just being like, well, there's a type of skepticism here that's a bit different from like and this Jenny McCarthy hundred, right. thinking about like autism this, and children. Like this is and it's legitimate like hundreds, hundreds of years of trauma yeah. being accumulated and trauma that still is being exacted on black people yeah. <laughs> by medical professionals. I mean, it's it's a lot more complicated than just saying like, just go to the doctor, just yeah. trust doctors, just take the vaccine, it's fine. It's fine, don't worry about it. Um, yeah, I, I don't really know how to end my section on a more positive note. Um, do you have any anything to to say to sort of round off <laughs> the section in a in a good way? Uh, hire more people of color to be doctors. Yeah, I think a huge, I think a big thing of here would just be like to actively like include more people of color like in. Mm. In the medical industry. In decision-making roles. In decision-making roles, in research roles, like in all aspects in the entire hierarchy of the medical field. Because I do think that just having... White people making decisions for black people maybe is not maybe is not the way. Yeah, exactly. And like we've seen we've seen with women being more included, and I think that that is having like a positive effect in terms of women being more included in the research process and being like Mm. better represented in the in the scientific aspect of it. Uh, although it definitely could do more work there as well. For sure. But I do think that just ha- having having them be part is such a huge deal. And I think that, sure. that would help. And I guess the other solution is just solve racism. <laughs> Leechfest, we, we are dedicated to solve racism. <laughs> yeah. Um, and hopefully you are too. I don't know how to do it, but hopefully uh, hopefully we'll get there. But I do think that like we just hire more hire more doctors of color. 
Yeah, I think it's um Doc. I, what? Doc. What like, do you... DOC. Doctor of color? Like, like, like Doc. Like Doctor. Doc? Doctor uh-huh. of color. Nice. Um yeah, it's a it's a very complicated issue. It's a very um heavy issue. But um I hope that this episode has been informative, mm. at least. I, I, you know, I wish I could end. I wish I could end the section by being like, "This is what we need to do, and this is how we're going to do it." And you know, and I, and I gave some some examples of some things that need to happen. But obviously, this is a this is a huge problem mm. that needs to be addressed. And um, I just hope that future, you know, present and future generations are going to help enact positive change. Yeah. And I think being informed helps with that. And I definitely been informed by your, by what you said. I've been I've, informed. I've, I've learned so much. Actually. I'm so glad. I've learned so much about the history of uh, medical professionals. Yeah. So thank the, you. The Flexner report. The Flexner report. Now God, I get the joke. God damn it, Flexner! You ruined so much. <laughs> you could, you could have, you could have changed things for the better. And no, you decided to be a damn racist, and we have to deal with it a hundred years later because you're a damn racist. Yeah. As with many things, we all have to deal with the d- bad decisions of a white guy 150 <laughs> years ago. History is fun. But I think with that... With that said... We, we're, we're finishing our, 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 our partly episode, I guess, because this is something that I think we can return to in mm-hmm. like another field. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned the Tuskegee experiment. That's definitely going to be a, an episode Is it Tuskegee future. or Tuskegee? My teacher, my I I am taking a bioethics course right now, actually, (laughs) and my teacher says Tuskegee, so I'm not sure. Okay, Uh, when I did uh, medical history in in the uni, they call it Tuskegee. Yeah, Tuskegee. Tuskegee. All right, but we don't know. We'll find that out when we do the episode about it, and that's going to be a whole episode, I think, too. And there's so much here that we can. Yeah, I think um, I think there's quite a few things about um, racism in, in uh, medical history that we can talk about. Yeah. So we can, we can shelf that for later. We can shelf that. Uh, but in the meantime, this was our episode on... Um, I'm not sure what we're going to call it. It's kind of a long name. Yeah. Discrimination of women and people of color in the medical... In the healthcare industry. Dr. Bigot. <laughs> the Adventures of Dr. Bigot. Specifically, <laughs> Abraham Flexner. The Adventures of Dr. Bigot. Bigotry in healthcare. Bigotry in healthcare. This has been bigotry in healthcare and how it's how it's hating how it's halting progress and making things worse. Mm. We can sit on that. We can I, sit on that. Yeah, you'll find you'll know what it is like an hour ago, probably. <laughs> right. We're figuring um, it out here. We're professional podcasters. But uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope it wasn't too heavy. It kind of needed to be. It's a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic. It needs to. It needs to be the 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 weight it deserves to be. That's true. But this was Leechfest, and my name is Raluca Mutano. Uh, and I am Mia Mulder. And uh, you can find us on Twitter, if you are so inclined. Uh, you can look us up at uh, Leechfest Pod. Leechfest Pod? I think so. Yeah. Leechfest Pod. If you want to support us, that's super appreciated. It helps us uh, keep going. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Patreon, Leechfest Podcast. Um, yeah, otherwise, I hope you enjoy the episode. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, check our other episodes out some of them are pretty good some of them are pretty good we talk about a lot of stuff and we think we have a pretty like good takes about them and as i'm going to say now if you if you're listening on itunes please leave a review uh it does help the podcast significantly uh i haven't checked our ranking uh but i'm sure we're there somewhere (laughs) but we do like the reviews and uh, we don't pay to advertise the show at all we we add we go exclusively by word of mouth 
So if you uh, like the podcast and want to share it with someone, please do. Send this to a doctor. <laughs> they might they might benefit from knowing a little bit about the racism in their in their field. Because I do feel that medical history is not a thing that doctors no, learn. No, it's not. Exactly. My so also doctors. also very interestingly, by the way, oh. Uh, oh. my bioethics teacher said that actually. Um, Biomedical scientists, you know, researchers mm-hmm. are a lot better at bioethics than physicians. Really? Yeah, because he teaches, you know, everything about like uh, medical experimentation, you know, like um, ethics in, yeah. in, in medicine and medical science to both uh, medical students and biomedical or whatever. And he said that like we're so much better, like we really understand the stuff and think about the stuff like way mm. more than physicians, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I do think that many people go into uh, medical training to become doctors yeah. with the mindset of like, I'm not here to, to think about ethics. I'm going to cure diseases. And like that's sort of the mindset that they have. I don't know. I feel like um, in the course that I'm doing right now, some of the things that they teach us and ask us to think about, I think would be very applicable to yeah. a physician's work also. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's a whole another story, whole another tangent. Um, hope you enjoyed the episode, and um, we will see you next time. Next time. Bye. Bye.